How is everyone? Good. We're in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the privilege of being able to read your word, being able to hear your word, being able to sing your word. And we thank you that you are an amazing and awesome God who loves us so much. You truly are great. Lord, I pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of your Son, continue to make us more and more and more and more like Jesus. Uh, use your word, uh, as you say in Ephesians, to wash us, uh, to, to cleanse us, God. It's like uh, a holy soap, Lord. So may we continue uh, to bathe in your word, God. May it continue to have a transforming effect on our hearts. Lord, help us to have ears today that can hear uh, from you and then put it into action. Be gracious to us, Father, um, as you are. We thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for his death on the cross. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone that there is eternal life. Be with us now as we continue on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at um, the different um, characteristic traits we talked about what they look like a little bit, uh, but we really focused on what it looks like to be God's chosen ones, to be God's uh, holy ones, and to be his beloved. Today we're going to look a little more in depth at what each of these uh, character traits uh, look like in the life of the believer. One of the things that we noticed was that when we talk about putting on, there's this imagery that we get of clothing. That's really the imagery that Paul's um, calling to mind. In fact, I think the NIV uses something like clothe, clothe yourself or clothe yourselves. The idea is, is that we're, we're putting off the, the garments already mentioned, uh, as you can see in verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. We're putting those off, take off the wicked garments, and we're putting on the heavenly garments or the heavenly clothes. So this is, this is part two um, today. So we are commanded here to put on these clothes of character. The clothes of character. What does that mean? Well, these are the character traits 
that God is commanding us to have and display in our life. This means a few things. One, it means that if we have these traits, people will see them. Now, we don't, we don't display them for the benefit of people seeing them. Um, we don't want to do our good works in front of men for the praise of men. But if we are, uh, have the Holy Spirit filling us, if we're walking in his ways, then we will display these traits and they won't but help be seen by others. They will be apparent. And here's my first point, if you're taking notes. And this is important. You can choose to put on the heavenly clothes because you've already been chosen to wear them. Note back, really, all of last week's sermon, but just note briefly in verse 12, put on then, and then here's really the, the, the preface or the a priori or what comes before. We're putting on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So God's, God's chosen us, we're the chosen ones, and because he chose us, he has also chosen the clothes for us to wear. So we're going to look at each article of clothing that the Lord commands us to put on. The first one is compassionate hearts. Anyone using the King James today? All right. I see your hand back there. It says bowels of mercies. Yes, the word literally, when you sometimes the word heart is used, um, it really actually can refer to the stomach. Um, you know, so the idea is, is, is at least with, with the, the Greeks and the Romans, it was more like the emotions were more felt like in the stomach, where we've kind of translated it more to, what is, you know, what, what is your heart saying? How do you feel in your heart? Well, for them, it was more located in the, in the stomach. So you get a translation uh, of bowels of mercy in the King James. Uh, most versions are heart of compassion or heart of mercy or tender-hearted mercy or in, in the ESV, as I read, uh, compassionate heart. One theologian said this term forth, uh, forcefully expresses personality at the deepest level, especially in the matter of living. And here's the thing. When we talk about Christianity, Christianity, when you look at it, the 2,000 years of Christianity, Christianity brings with it compassion. Uh, another theologian said, everything that has been done for the aged, the sick, the weak in body, the weak in mind, the animal, the child, the woman, has been done under the inspiration of Christianity. Christianity has advanced the standing of children and women more than any other religion or worldview. It displays the glory of women. Why? Because its founder displayed it and taught us to revel in it. It shows the preciousness of children. Why? Because its founder, Jesus, displayed it and showed us and displayed the preciousness of children. But <clears throat> even as we start to look at how the followers of Jesus walked it out, what did compassionate hearts look like? If you just think for a moment, like how the Roman Empire was Christianized, I mean, it's a pretty amazing and beautiful thing. But what led to many conversions? It was, it was really Christian fearlessness in the face of death. This was seen in the, in, in the, in the case of, of many of the martyrdoms 
people willing to, to go to their death, not recant or anything like that. And we could, we could talk about that for a while. We're not. But it was also seen in the plagues. And I'm going to quote at length from an article. But back then, a plague would sweep into a town and would just, I mean, it would just ravish and devastate the town. And, and these plagues did not kill like, you know, 0.1% of a population, but would leave many families, you know, losing half their family. And oftentimes, the doctors and the wealthy, they'd see a plague, and guess what they would do? They would flee. Even the doctors. And this, I mean, this happened, you can, you can look at plague after plague after plague that we have in recorded history. And once the Christians are on the scene, even back in, in the early Roman Empire, uh, everyone's fleeing, and what are the Christians doing? They're running in to help the people. They're going into the thick of the battle. Now that probably means a little bit more, or it maybe hits a little bit more home, considering we've been, whatever you want to call it, for the last three or four years, uh, a pandemic <clears throat> of sorts. But it was this Christian fearlessness uh, in the face of martyrdoms, but in the face of, of plagues. When the Black Plague hit London in 1665, it was, it was devastating. And some parts of London lost so many peeper, people that, that all the record keepers died, so they don't even know how many people they lost. And some towns, uh, up to half the population died. We can't even fathom that. I mean, we really can't. We can't fathom that. I mean, think about when, when COVID was first on the scene, they were talking about uh, a, a death rate of like 5 to 6%. That was the initial estimates, if you remember, right? Way lower. But that, and, and people were freaking out about 5 and 6%. But you're talking uh, some of the plagues uh, wiped out a, a third of the population. And what did the believers do? They ran into the midst of it to minister. People dying painful deaths. And it was common for people to flee. What did the Christians do? They ran to the sick. So the sick lay dying, and they cared for their fevers. They fed them. They nourished them. They put themselves right into the mouth of the disease and death to heal and care for the sick. And it made all the difference. People saw that someone cared for their dying loved ones. And they saw someone willing to risk their lives to save them. First, if you have the hope of eternal life, you can do something like that. Because you know that this life is not the real life. And you know that there is a life to come that is much better. It was so powerful that in London, <clears throat> so many came to the Puritan side that the king had to pass what's called the Five Mile Act to stop it. The Five Mile Act uh, basically was an, a law that he passed that forbade clergymen from li living, visiting, or preaching within five miles of a parish that they had been expelled from. So the nonconformists, basically, that branch of the Puritans, um, they couldn't preach. If they got expelled from their church, they couldn't preach within five miles. Furthermore, uh, they couldn't come within five miles of any city, town, or borough that had a member of parliament there unless they swore allegiance to the king. The Five Mile Act. In ancient Rome, it led to the conversions of countless souls. Martin Luther, a lot of people don't know, but he helped care for plague victims when it struck Germany in the midst of the Reformation. There he was. And on and on and on and on. Jonathan Edwards took care of his uh, 
of his uh, son-in-law. It ended up costing him uh, his, his daughter's life, married to him. But we could go on and on and on about believers that stepped into the fray and into horrible situations that made a difference to an unbelieving world. They could not wrap their minds around why people would stay. That is having a compassionate heart. That is having a compassionate heart. Let's talk about kindness. George Bernard Shaw, the the Irish playwright, he once wrote a letter to Winston Churchill. He said, Enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. (laughs) So Churchill replied, Dear Mr. Shaw, unfortunately I'll be unable to attend the opening night of your play due to a prior engagement. Please send me tickets for a second night if you have one. (laughs) So this word um, here translated kindness, it's a lovely word for a lovely quality. It's used to describe uh, in, in ancient Greek wine which has grown mellow with age and has lost its harshness. It was used by Jesus to describe his yoke. When he says, my yoke is easy, that's the word that he's using there in the Greek. His yoke is easy. It's a kind yoke. It's also listed in Galatians uh, as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And thus it's a result of the fullness of God in human life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And God himself has this quality. Look at Romans chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1, Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So there, that word kindness, it's the same Greek word that we're seeing in Colossians. The same one that we're being commanded to clothe ourselves with is the same one that God already has. And what is his kindness meant to do? He's displaying kindness and kindness and kindness and kindness. And what's that supposed to lead us to? Here it tells us repentance. Like he's so kind, it, would, it should cause us, as his enemies, he is so kind, even to his enemies, it should cause us to bow the knee, repent of our wicked deeds, and come before him for forgiveness. That's what his kindness is meant to do. Lead us to repentance. Look at Titus chapter 3.
We'll start in verse 1, Titus 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then notice verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Hear that Greek word, it's the same word for in, in the ESV translated goodness, that first word. Some versions actually only have one word. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, what happened? He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Like those attributes appeared. What's the result? He saved us. He is a very kind and gracious God. Kindness. Uh, this uh, past, this actually yesterday and, and Friday uh, was the uh, homeschool state basketball championship. And so I coach uh, my daughter's uh, uh, JV girls basketball team. And um, they didn't have a JV division, so they had to bump us up into the varsity. So it's, it's a little bit tougher. We actually uh, won our first uh, a couple games, so we actually got into the championship game. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, very impressive, considering they're just a JV team. So we're playing for the championship, and it's uh, just a tight game. End of the first half, I think we were down by two points. We're fighting it back and forth. We get into the, um, towards the middle of the second half, and uh, one of the uh, players on my team gets a foul called on her, and the, uh, a scorebook um, person is like, oh, that's her fifth foul. And, and um, the way it works it's, it's, all, it's all volunteers, except for the refs. You know, somehow they get paid. But <laughs> everyone else is volunteer. I'm a volunteer. You know, the people, it's parents take, keeping track of the stats and everything. But usually each team has their own scorekeeper. So I looked at my scorekeeper because usually I can keep pretty good track, at least when it's coming up to five fouls. And when you get five fouls, that means you're out of the game. And so I looked at her. She, we weren't the official book. We were the official clock. So we weren't keeping, we weren't in charge of it, but we still keep it. I looked at her. She's like, I only have four. So they end up talking. The refs come over. They're talking. And I'm like, I know she doesn't have five. And I'm just like, oh, Lord, please, like, please work this out. Because she's one of my best players. This is a championship game. And they can't figure it out. So the ref comes to me and he's like, you've got to take her out. She's got the official book. I have to go with the official book. So I call her over, and she's like, I, I know I don't have five files. And I'm like, I know, I know, like, but that's what the book has. So it's unfortunate. We have to go with it. So she, you know, she starts to, like, break down emotionally, understandably. Championship game, she wants to be in there. She feels like she's being taken out wrongly. So then the ref comes over to me, <clears throat> and he's like, you know, you got to put, put someone in. And I'm like, I'm like, I got 15 seconds. <laughs> Because the rules say I, I, can, I get 15 seconds to replace a fouled out player. <clears throat> and so I'm like, he's like, you got to take her out. I'm sorry. It's not my call. It's the official book. I'm like, look, I get 15 seconds. And I'm like, I need all 15 seconds just to kind of like maintain my composure here. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I just said, I'm like, 
I am frustrated right now. I'm not frustrated at you. I'm like, I get it. It's the, it's the way the rules are written, but I, I just need a moment. And so um, I just walk away and I put the girl in. And while I'm doing that, uh, the, the two refs go over to the other coach. And I don't know what was said, um, but they talked to the coach and the other coach agreed that she could keep playing and we'd act as if she just had the four files. Now, that's kindness on the ref's part, and it was also kindness on that coach's part. That's kindness. That's kindness. Um, they didn't have to do that, and they probably went over there and said, look, it, it, it does appear. They probably saw you know, the, my player breaking down <laughs> on, the, on the chair emotionally and realized that it probably was not the right call, and the official book had probably messed up. It happens. Not, you know, usually not a big deal. But that, that's kindness. But here's my question. It's kind of a, a follow-up to the illustration. Like, what would have happened if, if I would have handled that a little different and been, like, mad at the ref? Which is, you know, um, easy for many coaches to do. And if I, would have, if I would have just blown up, and that's why I was like, look, I'm frustrated. I'm not frustrated at you. I'm just frustrated. And I, I just need a second to kind of, you know, uh, regain composure a little bit, but I, I was pretty gracious, and I really did, honestly didn't talk much much more than I'm I'm talking to you now. But if I would have if I would have been frustrated at him or let him know I was unhappy or raised my voice or whatever, do you really think he would have gone over to that other coach? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now I didn't expect him whatsoever to do that, so I clearly was not doing that in the hopes that he might do that. That was, I was not even on, on my radar. But my point is, like, how we interact with people can encourage them in one direction or another. It encourages them in one another. Even, I mean, in Proverbs, it's just kind of like, you know, basic daily living. Uh, what does a, a gentle answer do? I mean, it turns away wrath. You know, and he was being gracious to me, too, when I was like, hey, I got 15 seconds and, and I need it. I mean, he wasn't like, no, who, do you, who are you putting in? I mean, he, he got it. He understood. But, you know, just basic daily living, how we interact with people really impacts them. And, and if we're believers, we want to encourage people towards the kingdom, right? And those refs, I mean, they're just drawing on whatever refs. We were in Columbia, Missouri, so they're just drawing on probably local refs from that area. But they know that it's a Christian homeschool tournament. And they know that, that obviously most of the coaches, if hopefully not all of them, are believers and that the players are homeschooled and, and the vast, vast majority are, you know, claiming to be Christians or from Christian families. And so we, I mean, we have an opportunity to, to, to be witnesses to these referees and how we conduct ourselves. And sadly, I've seen some horrible jobs done and even had the refs uh, comment to me like I thought you guys were a homeschool Christian organization like that's shameful it's shameful and so our our witness I mean even can be can be hurt or can be helped by something as, as, as simple as, as a basketball game where you got unbelievers there and, and even if you think you know I mean, we have uh, in our extended family unbelievers, and they're invited to the games. And I mean, if the coaches are freaking out, or if the if the players are are getting mad, like what does that say to them? It's a poor representation. 
So <clears throat> as we're walking, like if I want my brothers and sisters in Christ to, to encourage them towards the path of righteousness, I can actually help them do that. I can help them do that. Why? In, in how I interact with them. You can make people's lives easier or you can make it harder. You can make it more pleasing or you can make it less pleasing. So let's, let's choose the path that, that glorifies the Lord and encourages people towards godliness. Humility, that's the next one in Colossians. Interestingly enough, the Greeks hated this word. They would never use it to describe themselves. They saw humility as a sign of weakness. One uh, theologian said, it is a pathetic reflection that while humility is the sovereign grace of Christianity, the Greeks had no symbol in their language to denote it. Every word akin to it has in it some element of meanness, feebleness, or contempt. But you know what the gospel did? It took this word for contempt and made it one of its chief graces. Look at Philippians 2 and we can see how it's used. Verse 5, Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in verse 8 there, that word, he humbled himself. That's the word. So this word is used to describe how our Savior acted on this earth, but not even just how he acted throughout his life, which we see it displayed, but even, it says, to the point of death, death on a cross. Even at the end of his life, even at, for his sacrifice for us, it was a humbling act, and he did it willingly. What's Paul's testimony to the Ephesians? Look at Acts chapter 20. Verse 17, Acts 20. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. With all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How was his service? It was with all humility with all humility. And then even Jesus himself, when he's speaking in Matthew 11, if you look there, says something very similar. Verse 28, Come to me, 
Chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So that word lowly there, it's that same Greek word. But notice what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We got to learn. We have to learn this. We have to learn his instruction, but we have to learn even something like what it is to be gentle and what it is to be lowly. And what's the result? And you will find rest for your souls. And then verse 30 is the verse we already, I already referenced. For my yoke is easy. It's a kind yoke, and my burden is light. Listen, humility is the opposite of a self-centered will. That's why Philippians 2 says, do nothing from selfish, amb- selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, do what? Count others more significant than yourselves. And then in 1 Peter 5, it says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves. There's that imagery again of clothing. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. I mean, you who are younger be subject to the elders, but everyone, the elders and the younger, everyone alike is supposed to clothe themselves, all of you, he says, with humility toward one another. It's this imagery again of clothing ourselves. So it's the opposite of proud. In fact, the Bible even makes that clear to us. James chapter 4, verse 6. What it says, uh, it says, God opposes who? The proud. Who does he give grace to? The humble. So then he goes on in verse 10 of James 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So it's, it's the opposite of proud. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So we imitate our Savior quite well when we walk in this trait. This is how he walked. This is how he commands us to walk. Then we have the word meekness. Some versions translate it gentleness. That's fine. The idea of this characteristic is that the meek man or woman is under perfect control. So gentleness or meekness is strength under control. In Numbers 12, we read in verse 3, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who are on the face of the earth. In the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, it's that same Greek root word. Think about Moses, though. He was a man who could act decisively. He could be hard as nails. He could rise in anger at the proper time. But those wearing the true garment of meekness are immensely powerful people. Why? Because they are controlled by God. They're instilled with a self-control. Look at 2 Corinthians 10. So 
2 Corinthians 10.1, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. But notice what he says here about the meekness. How is he entreating them? What is he appealing to? The characteristic of Christ here, of the meekness and gentleness. I entreat you, not just I entreat you by Christ, but I'm going to entreat you by his meekness and gentleness. So he's coming before them, and he's really defending his, his ministry, but he, he's coming before them and saying, hey, look, the, the way I want to do this is, is based on Christ's uh, meekness and humility, his meekness and his gentleness. The way I've walked before you should be a testimony to that. But it's Christ's meekness and gentleness. So it's the opposite of acting in anger. And finally, the word patience. Listen, brothers and sisters. God is so much more patient with you than you will ever have to be towards anyone else. He's so much more patient than you will ever have to be with anyone else. Might be an unruly child, an unloving spouse, a disgruntled coworker, but God is so much more patient with you than you will ever have to be regarding any situation or any person. I mean, we think we're challenged by lines at the grocery store or a slow driver on a one-lane road or on the phone with the IRS. I mean, that's like short-term stuff. But even long-term, like, we have to have patience. Maybe if we're caring for a loved one that is terminally ill or loving an adult child and being patient as they make unwise decisions. Think about it, though. Me, a rebellious sinner, went against God every day for 18 years. And I metaphorically spit in his face every single day. And he was patient. He was patient. Thank the Lord. Very patient. So, ponder this for a moment. The priests in the Old Testament, they had certain clothing to wear. I mean, if they are going to perform their duties, it's outlined what they're supposed to wear. Let's just read just a little bit of it. Exodus 28. Twenty-eight, verse 1, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. Turn one chapter over, Exodus 29. Verse 4, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments 
and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. I mean, it's, it lays out, and before that you can read, it lays out the different clothing. It's very intricate in the detail and what they could and they couldn't read. Uh, wear, sorry. What they couldn't wear. But what do we see in the New Testament? What we see in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2, that, that we're the priesthood, right? 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Well, guess what? The priests in the New Testament, us, we have our own garments to wear. Old Testament had, had physical garments. We're given garments of the traits that we see here in Colossians. What if Aaron showed up for duty and he was just wearing like cargo shorts and a Hawaiian t-shirt and flip-flops? It's kind of an interesting image if you think about it. Like how would that go? He wouldn't be able to perform his duties, right? Well, the same is true for us. We have duties that God wants us to perform. Guess what? We got to have the right clothing to do it. You got to have the right garments. And we're told what the priests in the New Testament are to wear. When are these needed? These are needed in community. And just like I mentioned last week, the very things that we may think are keeping us from putting these garments on are the things which make possible their wearing. It is the challenging situation that shows whether we're wearing it or we'll put it on in that moment. The very things we may think are keeping us from putting on these garments the unruly child, the unloving spouse, the disgruntled coworker, those are the things which make possible their wearing. You can display all these things at home by yourself when nobody's around. That's easy. No, these are, these are meant for community living. Do you want to know if you have uh, these traits? If you want to know if you're lacking, then, then ask your spouse. It's true. Like, like, seriously, if you want to grow, then I encourage you, challenge you, exhort you on the way home today. Maybe if you have, if you have kids, maybe you should do that um, after you get home. <laughs> Behind closed doors. <clears throat> but sometime today, if you don't have kids, do it on the way home. But sometime today, hey, honey, like, and you can read the list. How am I doing in those? Or maybe you should be like, which one could I do better? <laughs> but ask your spouse, hey, ask if you have children that are a little bit older, ask your children. All right, my, my children are more than willing to participate <laughs> in this. Ask your close friend, and then don't be offended at the answer. Don't be offended at what they say. We, listen, we always grade ourselves much more charitably than, than we grade other people. It's like we grade on a curve, you know? And we're always on the, the, the other end of that bell curve, always getting the A, right? And everyone else we lump, you know, towards the other side, towards the left. They're failing. I mean, it's true. But if we want to, I guess my point is like, if we want to grow like Christ, we can hear a sermon like this, but to put it into action, we need to figure out 
hey, where am I struggling? Where am I falling short? Where is, is, do I need more of, of uh, the Holy Spirit filling me, encouraging me, my friends correcting me, encouraging me, praying for me? Which one of these? Because you hopefully are doing good in a couple, but if you're honest, the Lord has likely prodded your heart at some point and been like, yeah, that one. If you're a younger believer, it, he probably has, you may, maybe you haven't heard him. That's why you need to ask, ask people. But it, when it becomes apparent and your spouse is like, you know, you're constantly impatient. I mean, you're not putting that garment on. You're not wearing it. And we want to be more like Christ. So if we want to be more like Christ, like that's something that we got to focus on. And so I kind of resoluted. I don't even know if that's a word, but I resoluted to myself like at the beginning of this year, I'm like, okay, where maybe am I falling short when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit? Where could I be doing better? What particular fruit do I need more of? And then I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the Lord and even scarily, I'm going to ask him to put me in situations that, that test that particular fruit, that I need to display it greatly in order to walk in the Spirit in that moment. Why? Because I want to be more like Christ. I want to be conformed to his image. And so for any believer, it's like not acceptable to have love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and, and be missing out on the patience and self-control. So yes, you can have, you know, seven out of, out of the nine of them or however many there are, but if you're falling short too, like that's where the Lord's pointed it out to you. And that's where he wants you praying and seeking and being on your knees and being like, Lord, change me. Hopefully you all still pray that. Right? Like, I mean, I hope you all don't think you've arrived. I mean, I can tell you you haven't, okay? <laughs> but seriously, like where are you falling short when it comes to these and then get on your knees in your quiet time and be like, Lord, forgive me. I am lacking humility greatly. I'm very proud. I think I know everything. Forgive me, Lord. Or whatever it might be. Whichever characteristic it is. And then, and then set your mind and heart on having God come into your life, give you those opportunities, those trials, those challenges that can, I mean, he's already kind of brought the dross up to the surface, so let him sweep that away. Ask him to bring up and give you and fill you with a patience that only comes from him. I'm not saying pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. That won't work. That would be a false humility or a false patience, a false kindness. No, let, you need more of God. That's what I'm saying. Less of you, more of God. What did John the Baptist say? He must become greater. I must become less. I mean, everyone should have that verse underlined, circled, highlighted in their Bible. It's like Christianity 101. He must become greater. I must become less. Well, if he's going to become greater, then guess what? You need these traits. That makes you less. He will be displayed more, and less of you will be displayed. So, as we need, we need to repent. As we need, we need to conform our hearts. We need them transformed. Why? Because we want to be more like Christ. He is the ultimate tailor. 
and he's making our wardrobe for us. So some of us, we got, we got some earthly wardrobe garments we need to get rid of. The anger, the bitterness, the malice, the immorality. But listen, all these qualities that we've looked at, they're attributed to God and to Christ over and over and over and over again, Old Testament and New Testament. So it shows further that the good behavior of the Colossians is necessary because it is to mirror the behavior of their God and Savior. You want to be conformed? We've just seen that's who God is. That's who our Savior is. And, and we want to be like Him, yes? And so we repent where we're falling short. We plead for Him to help. We ask others around us to keep us accountable. And then we look for those opportunities and pray in the moment to walk according to His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do want to be more and more conformed to the image of your Son. I pray even now, Lord, as, as you've spoken to different people of, of particular traits that, that they're lacking in or they could be doing better in, that you would uh, you'd prick, prick their conscience. And let it not just listen here, be pricked, and then walk out and forget. But, but give them a resoluteness towards doing something about it, towards seeking your face, towards seeking uh, forgiveness from you, towards seeking forgiveness if, if they know they need to make it right with other people, God, for being short in, this, in a particular characteristic or trait. And they, they would be humble enough to ask their spouse which one they could be doing better in, and they would just listen Why? Because, Lord, we want, to, we want to be more like you. We want to love you. We want to pursue you. We want to be conformed to the image of your Son. Day by day, transformation, Lord. We thank you for the initial regeneration you gave us at our salvation, but we're still, we're still on that wheel. You're still the potter. We're still the clay. You're still forming us. So the imperfections, smooth them out, Lord, by your mercy and grace. Amen.